Hey, welcome to the Mostly Skateboarding Podcast. I'm your host, Templeton Elliott. I'm joined this week by Mike Munzenreiter and Jason from Frozen and Carbonite to talk about Skateboarding, Power, and Change, a book by Dr. Indigo Willing and Anthony Papalardo, who are also joining us today. Welcome to the show, Anthony and Dr. Willing. Can you guys tell us what this book is all about? Thanks for inviting us on the show. I'm going to let Anthony have a bit of a think about it, and I'll have a shot at it first, I guess, about what the book is. It came from the idea of this sort of ethical turning point in skateboarding where it had a culture of, you know, shut up and skate and a lot of things that were going on weren't really talked about. And then there just seemed to be this, you know, opportunity. It was like a very chaotic opportunity, particularly around the time that Brian Anderson came out or, you know, was able to, you know, safely say in industry, you know, with his support network that he's a gay skater, that things seem to radically change. And that's kind of when I joined skateboarding. So, you know, it was a really good time as a as a woman to kind of join skateboarding in this era where things were definitely shifting in terms of it always being about one type of skater. It seemed like there are many people just waiting to be a bit more authentic to themselves and, you know, have conversations that hadn't always been welcome. So, yeah, the book really picks up on that. I'm not really sure how to <laughs> talk about it. It was like a 300-page book and all of a sudden it's like, oh, wow, it's it's really hard to talk about in, in nice little terms. I'm going to let Anthony have a shot. Sure, yeah. I guess I have a different experience because I come from the Shut Up and Skate era. You know, started skating in the, I guess, the mid-'80s, sort of a back-to-the-future kid. And I was interested in sort of street skating particularly, and I would – I'd be lying if I said, like, when I got into skating, I wanted to devour everything about its history, right? Like, I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, it'd be a total lie if I was like, all I wanted to do was learn about the 60s and the 70s. Like, I was so in the moment because this thing was happening, right? And I think as you get older, you start to get really interested in, in the origins of things. Uh, my analog would be, like, getting into sort of punk rock at the same time punk rock was still happening and you know it was more digging back to like the early albums of a band or something right and I wasn't necessarily like oh, I need to learn about the Stooges and the MC5 so to sort of tie it back to this book I think there's very like hyper th- there's a lot of books in skateboarding that are focused on an issue or something a connection to something or you know one like an independent trucks book like focused on a brand but if you were to sort of recommend to someone who is, you know, wanted to learn about skateboarding. Oh, what are the texts I read? I wouldn't know what, you know, I couldn't push them towards anyone other than saying like, look at old magazines or look at these websites, follow these accounts, you know? So I think one, one part of this book was to leave a historical record and what was a historical record sort of this shift in skateboarding where I I would sort of pinpoint it as like skateboarding pre and post social media which is very broad, but when we first had these initial discussions, it's kind of hard to see that you're in a moment when the moment's happening. And then uh, from our, from when we first discussed this book to sort of coming up with the framework, you know, it felt like skateboarding was changing every six months and that could be reactionary to social climate, to um, the person who is in charge of the United States, to, you know, the murder of George Floyd, to just, you know, COVID restrictions itself and how that, altered the industry. And I think, you know, there's a very clear delineation that you don't need the structure of skateboarding anymore to thrive. And and that has given way to a lot of 
really creative people. Um, I wish there was a better term than non-traditional, but that seems to be the catch-all. But it, it just seems that skateboarding is more closely resembling what skateboarding actually is and not this narrow funnel that we're kind of used to if you're from an era where there's, you know, media was a lot smaller. So I think, you know, just documenting what I think is a movement in skateboarding where skateboarding, not the industry per se, but the narrative of skateboarding is owned by skateboarders and allowing those people, it's done through a mix of people who had been there through a lot of skateboarding's history and who are driving, you know, where skateboarding is going now. Oh, wow. I, I'm, I'm thinking, and this is kind of an aside, but like, the last couple of years, like based on Anthony, what you were just saying in terms of like social change and how that like pushed on skateboarding and affected skateboarding, it's like as progressive, not in like the same terms as the early 90s, but like skateboarding was changing and as dynamic as it's ever been, probably more radically so. That's like a really interesting hook. That aside, I know Pushing Borders was kind of the, the place where you two linked up. Like Anthony, you're in Brooklyn, Indigo. Brisbane, based on you know the first couple of pages of the, of the media copy I'm looking at here, like could could you tell the background of how you two linked up to do what is a far ranging project? Yeah, I can kind of go with that. I, we met at Pushing Borders in Malmo and just had, you know, I, I, th I think the beauty of those those events are the side conversations as much as they are the main stage. And so Indigo and I met and talked, and it was you know my my memory especially over the past few years is pretty bad. It, it used to be spot on. And then all of a sudden time ceased to exist. And I, especially during early stages of the pandemic, I think I tried to finish Netflix uh, in its entirety or something. So it's like <laughs> my, my perception of time is pretty warped, but I just remember having a cool conversation and, and there just being this, uh, you know, just sort of casual opportunity that we might be able to work together on something. And for me, I was, I've been really lucky in skateboarding in just in my career in general that I've gotten to speak and work with so many amazing people. And, and, you know, the beauty of skateboarding is that it keeps evolving. So I'm always getting to talk to like emerging people, emerging voices. And, but in the realm of academia, I had never really been in that space. So that was a cool challenge to me. And, you know, also I like doing things that are unfamiliar to me. So the idea I haven't written anything more formal where I'm like worried about citations as much uh, since college, really. I mean, I've done some books that were research-based, but the format of those books was up to me. I, I wasn't beholden to uh, any institution. So just the idea of doing something new and doing something with someone that had a very different perspective than myself. And, and I apologize. I'm a very like wordy rambler. I'm a rambler, but uh, I, I'm really... I've been really reflecting like the past sort of like three or four years, this idea that like anywhere you go, if you take five people and you put them in a room, everyone entered that room differently. And I'm, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with myself and I know who I am and, 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 and where I am. Right. And I'm much more interested in everyone else. Right. Because I just think it's, it's just a simple concept that we kind of, take for granted, you know, um, and, and I, I guess what I mean by that is that, you know, if you're a person of a certain background entering a room with four of the people with a totally different background, that's much more intimidating than the other four people, right? Like, uh, it's almost like walking into a poker game where you don't know the skill level of the people. Um, so, so again, to like kind of circle back, the, the idea of 
not only getting to work with someone who has a totally different background and that I get to learn from, but then also the opportunity to learn from all the people that we spoke to. Cause I don't know. I mean, partially because it's, uh, if you just told me to write about whatever, that's kind of daunting. I need guardrails. And also I'm probably not going to learn that much, right? Like I might get better as a writer. I might maybe do something exploratory that teaches me something about myself after I read it years later, but you know, learning in real time and, and kind of like back to that, like back to like my example of like people coming into a room, like learning how people come into skateboarding and what it was like for them is really exciting because it almost takes you back to, you know, your experience, uh, you know, our, our individual individual experiences when we first went to a spot and other people were there. Right. So, uh, first time you see yourself on film in a photograph, et cetera. We're all nodding. It's very good for podcasting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thinking, you know, the skate metaphors and just really enjoying it. So, yeah, I'd seen Anthony talk at Pushing Borders and, yeah, I, I think I, I wrote some notes down so I sound a bit, I don't know, shy when I when I talk about things um, that are a long time ago because I think, oh, no, I'll get it wrong. But, you know, a, a lot of the talks really stood out and what I remember about Anthony is that he was very reflective rather than reactive. And, you know, there's a real temptation when you're in a public light or you've got the spotlight to just sort of say things very quickly and maybe um, not take risks. And he just seemed very solid in what he thought and his knowledge of the industry was really impressive. And I followed his work on his Atlas Industria as well and read a lot of articles. And um, he just had so much integrity where even though things like pushing borders had happened and there were like some articles out there, I think, you know, skatism, that these alternative press are out. Still, people are very hesitant to to say anything like, you know, oh, maybe there's a problem about consent or maybe there's, you know, is um, going to be like skating is going to be a lot more radder if we, you know, talk about transphobia. And uh, Anthony just doesn't hesitate. He, he has an idea. He has a person he wants to find out more about. And he commits to that. And, yeah, I just, I just need to work. I need to be around people that I feel safe around, that I respect and that have integrity. And, um, you know, I just had that opportunity to kind of silently observe <laughs> everybody around the skate the skate scene. And I'm not an insider. I'm like an outsider. I always feel that way anyway. Like in society, like I'm Asian, um, I'm a refugee generation, and I've never been used to being part of a crowd, but I'm very friendly and I like hanging out with new people all the time. But when it comes to working on a project, I, I just felt like, I wanted to work with somebody that knew skateboarding really well and knew that 90s culture because I know I'm not from that era um, and I, I don't even want to pretend that I'm, I'm an encyclopedic knowledge of that. I wish I was. But also somebody that was really open to this these sort of newcomers or this new wave or what we do call non-traditional skaters. And it's not that the non-traditional skaters weren't there before. It's more that they traditionally weren't core they're, they're not from the tradition of being on the cover of thrasher or always being having a spot on the team or you know being the front person at the skate shop or whatever so that's what i think the book at least when it says non-traditional skaters and you know some people really cut it off and say you know well you know the scenes they're very nostalgic but not in the best way that it welcomes newcomers because we're all nostalgic about times when we we're younger and had fun and had friends and you know um, I, I love a lot of the humour from the 90s. It's it's not quite right for now. You probably wouldn't get away with it, but <laughs> I just think, oh, my God, Big Brother was outrageously good at times, right? And But, yeah, so I just I needed to have conversations with people that knew the past but were open 
to this sort of new wave and this new generation, this new way of having different perspectives tell their story and frame skateboarding and, you know, just have their own cultures that are mixing around other cultures of skateboarding. So, yeah, that was why I was keen to work with Anthony. I'm a rambler too. <laughs> Sorry for the ramble. Good for a podcast. <laughs> Do you know what I mean, though, about the 90s? Like, for somebody that is not from the 90s, and a lot of you all know that that era, and you've all had podcasts, and you all, like, have a bit of sense of the history, if you show somebody now Big Brother, you're like, wow, that's that's intense. Like, what the hell? And yet it's all so funny. Like, you think, oh, my gosh, like, they're really, some of it, they're just pushing it so far that it's actually showing us how absurd something is. So say it's, like, the Asian issue, the yellow issue. Like some of it's so absurd, it shows you how absurd racism is because it just pushes it to the edge and then it just, you know, jumps. And so it's like, you wouldn't want to do this now. Like you wouldn't want to have like, you know, kids reading how to do some of the, you know, instructional things that Big Brother had. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a real shift. And it's nice to have an interpreter from that era as well because, you know, as a sociologist and uh, anything else, I can interpret stuff from the past and I, I might be way off on the intention. And having somebody that's grown up with that and knows the nuances is just, you know, really, really, you know, really appreciated. I think it's really necessary if you're writing about skating to, yeah, as Anthony said, go in that room and know what the other people are seeing it differently and that their experiences are really, really important to make that room work and just to sort of understand what the bigger picture is. That being said, they had an article on how to steal a subway poster and I did that a couple of years ago. So that was valuable information that I did recreate in my own life. Nice. So the instructions still stand like 20 something years later? Yeah, you needed to like, you needed to have this tool and someone knew how to make it. So I I ended up, I pulled from my skateboarding background. I went to a hardware store and bought one of those like uh, high vis vests, you know, and because uh, I, <laughs> I, I always feel like when you're doing something illegal, the, the most obvious is the least obvious, like act like you're supposed to be there. So I had, uh, they did this program in New York where they commissioned a bunch of like pretty high level artists to do art for the bus stops. And uh, this guy, Andrew Quo does those like very famous for infographics in the New York times, like really witty infographics and also a really accomplished painter. He did one and it ended up, it was a couple blocks from my house. So I got up at five, I dressed like, I don't know, a dude who would be changing the posters at a bus stop and went over there, plugged this tool in and then it flipped open kind of like, uh like an escape hatch and scared the shit out of me and then i just rolled the shit up and left it open and, and kept running and some dude at the bus stop was like you need me to help you put that thing down and i was like no nah, man it's cool someone will be here and yeah and then several hundred dollars later i got this like six foot piece of art frame that i've, I've been lugging around so nice um along those lines 90s and whatnot oh, well first of all uh indigo anthony uh, welcome back to the broadcast so anthony you and i were both outside in the 90s right hashtag 90s so <laughs> from like a you know boots on the ground perspective and you mentioned you know going to a spot for the first time how has that experience changed from then to now for just like all types of kids like you know you know whatever you know gender dynamics are going on male female you know all types of groups how how has that changed do you think i, I think like when when i started skating and when i started getting more active like going to cities and stuff It was, you know, the 90s were kind of standoffish, I think, because I I don't really know. I can't really make (laughs) I don't know if it was people acting cool, if that was just sort of the part of the era, you know. But I think without this connectivity that we have now, like the norms 
like things are just kind of what they are and you just adapt to it. So it's like, if you heard homophobic language or you saw, saw something happening, like if you're, I think people were a little less uh, apt to speak out on it. And then as people get more comfortable that that dynamic would happen. Um, and then I think that was just true of everything. Like you think, you know, speaking of like, trying to finish Netflix, like it really was jarring going back and watching old movies that you used to think were funny that just the humor didn't hold up, right? You're, you're kind of like, uh, maybe I laughed at that because I was 13 and not because it was actually funny, right? Um, you know, whether it's like comedy specials or even just like goofy ass 80, 80s movies, you, you know, I think people now in general are just so much more aware and they're so much more vocal. And I think that's, I think that part is great, you know, but I mean, it, it going into Boston, I witnessed some pretty gnarly things. Like I saw cops arrest, go after Jamal Williams and let five white guys stand there, right? Like who are doing the same thing. There were skaters who were, you know, openly gay in their life that weren't gay at the spot, right? Because they were worried about what people would say. And I think, I don't know, I feel like anyone now who sort of is critical of like whatever they call like woke culture or whatever, it's like, I don't know. I don't want the world to go backwards. I don't want things. I think we all need to find ways, better ways to be funny. <laughs> you know, if we're talking about humor, like I think you can still have subversive graphics. You can still write things that push. You can still even snap on each other. You know, it's just, I just think there's a larger sensitivity now, which is a good thing because it's like, I don't know. I still, I, I kind of feel like I still came out of that, like, shitty bootstrap <laughs> take it on the chin generation and and the other thing i'll say quickly is like when i was really immersed in skateboarding like when i was really starting to get like immersed in skateboarding culture i was really immersed in like punk and hardcore culture and the parallels were so different like at a show people would be talking about like krishna. different social issues yeah yeah krishna too krishna unfortunately. yeah they would be inducting 15 year olds into a cult which is really <laughs> cool but um but no they'd be talking about like you know, LGBTQ issues, um, you know, just cap capitalism, whatever, you know, sure, it was a lot of kids who are maybe like, entry level poli sci reciting books or Zen or whatever the fuck, right. But like, that was one experience. And then skateboarding felt like a little stuck in the 80s still. So it was kind of like, a very like back and forth experience. But I don't know, I think I don't see anything going back to like, uh, I don't know, like, like old olden times where anything flies like uh, like didn't joe rogan try to open like a anti-woke club like i'm sure there's an anti-woke skate club somewhere but i don't think that's how uh <laughs> i'm sure there's a facebook group for that right the anti-woke park meetup or something but i don't see that really being uh predominant culture in skateboarding anytime soon geez shudder to think about the anti-woke skate meetup <laughs> i'm sure it's there i'm sure it's, i'm sure it exists yeah. I mean, you can, I mean, let's be real, you can visualize whom, you know, who those dudes would be. Imagine those fits. You know, you know what I mean? Like, wrist guard, wrist guards on both wrists, you know, I mean, yeah. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of wrist guards. Uh, you know, a, lot of, a lot of, like, under armor tactical gear, for sure. Yeah, yeah in, in some ways, like, I, I can understand why a lot of people feel misplaced by where skating has gone, because... You know, skateboarding, from what I can tell for past generations, you know, and I'm old, but like I'm, I would call myself a new generation skater. It was a place, it was a sanctuary from all the, the nonsense that you had to put up at work and a hard day and, you know, maybe your partner doesn't even ask how your day is and 
you know, you go to the skate park and everything's different. Like it's a place to relax and be with friends and be yourself and have like a little bit of autonomy and respect. And, you know, I, I feel like when you've got a whole bunch of different people, that's a new experience. It's not actually a shameful thing to be afraid or confused when you meet somebody that's different to you and you don't know how to engage with them. I feel like it's something that we all need to learn. And if somebody, like if I go over to France and I can't speak French and they just laugh at me all the time, I'm, I'm not going to really, you know, come on board and I'm going to start my own don't laugh at my French club. You know, like, so I feel like there's, there's going to be like a bit of, you know, like um, grace period and compassion as well, like understanding well, if, if the people are having these like uh, backlash or they're just feeling really misplaced and, you know, sort of mourning over some past that, you know, is changing for them. You know, they're kind of, I kind of want to know more about them too. Hey, I really want to just find out what, what what's actually, like as a sociologist in particular, like I don't think it's because it's there's women there or there's queer there. It's, it's got to be something else that's just happening where they their own sense of feeling really relaxed and together and belongings changing a lot. So, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's interesting that this is happening. If it's just about power and control, which is what our book and a lot of people talk about, yeah, that's, that's something that, you know, people will uh, be possessive about or not. But if it's because they don't actually understand how to interact with this, you know, different type of culture or the language or whatever it is, then that's easy to fix and everyone can get on and have a really good time. So, you know, I, I feel like a lot of people are doing that, that bridging work that we interviewed as well. So, you know, we talk to um, people like the, do skate parodies like Man Ramp and stuff like that. Like, it's sort of taking these extreme stereotypes and just throwing them in everybody's face and saying, you know, enjoy and like be open and have fun rather than sort of a threatening like you better get this right or um, skating's going to turn their back against you or whatever. So it, it's really interesting different types of strategies, I guess, that we found out in the book about how people make skaters all get on together, you know, which is what we're trying to do. We're just trying to make skating fun and, you know, a good time for everyone rather than anyone feeling, like, burdened that they have to get things right. And, yeah, it's interesting the different strategies. Again, like what Anthony said, different people coming into the room. We had 42 different people come into that room and sit down with us at different times and tell us or share with us what's made skating easier for them to just go out, turn up to a spot, have a good time and go home and have others feel the same way that they can do that without being, you know, abused or being made the butt of the joke or not being able to get a spot in the team because of their identity and nothing else. So, yeah, it's it's it was it was such a such a real privilege to listen to all those different perspectives and kind of get out of your own head as well. Like, you know, you can make things all about yourself. Oh, it's because I'm, you know, marginalized because of this, but when you listen to different people that are from completely different backgrounds, and different experiences you know a lot of it's yeah really about fear or just not having that bridging person or that opportunity of a space of somebody there to just mentor everybody a bit and say hey you know like yeah let's all just give each other the space and you know just yeah chill <laughs> That's not yeah, i was i was talking to someone recently about how skateboarding is almost like like a perpetual open mic night like when you go to a spot it's like you're there's like pressure to tell a joke. There's pressure to do something and, and you go, you tell your best joke and then no one reacts, you know, and it's just kind of like crushing. And I think that transcends sort of like any time in skating, you know, like whether you, I don't know, probably showed up barefoot at some pool in Southern California in 1970 and 
you know, show up to a spot now, like everyone feels that weird, like it's a performative art, right? Like you're, you're, you're not an anonymous painter who puts something on a wall and people can talk about it and don't know who created it. Like you're doing the thing in front of someone. So it is kind of like a very, it's always a very like real time feedback dynamic that I think that transcends no matter when you do it. But I will say what would be interesting, like Jason's question made me think like, I would be super curious, like we didn't obviously have time to do this for the book, but I would love to like thumb through old magazines with younger skaters just to get their impressions. Cause I'm thinking of some of like the t-shirts that people wore in the nineties with like a lot of like the, the pretty edgy world graphics where it was just like a crack pipe on a t-shirt or some kind of like out of context sketch, you know? And like, we just wore those in public, like it was no big deal. And it, you know, I don't think people thought about it. Right. And then now it's like, really jarring it would almost it almost be like why are you wearing a fucking confederate flag you know what i mean so it, I'd, I'd be really curious to like that's a good uh, content franchise of like younger people reacting to old skateboarding <laughs> like react videos <laughs> yeah that's a million dollar idea for like village psychic or something kind of like a uh like a mystery theater 3000 kind of thing that would be amazing too yeah just old videos in general but i mean it's an old video I mean, Mystery Space Theater 3000. I think it's Mystery Science Theater 3000. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. Thanks, Devlin. I was going to say, Indigo, I appreciate like the grace you extend to people who may be afraid or just discombobulated by changes. That is something sometimes I forget about because you know there's there's a lack of understanding. Maybe was curious. Just uh, you mentioned you you two talked to 42 different people for for this work. I guess we can't name everybody, but maybe just could you talk about like who you were talking to as kind of a representative sample and like why you chose them? I know that just reading the acknowledgments or, you know, the front of the book, there's a lot of people we know from skate Twitter, folks who might be listening to this very podcast. So how, how did the you know group of skaters that you two talked to come about? Initially, we were pushing borders when I met Anthony. I was very shy to talk to Anthony. I was a bit scared of you, man. And I was like, <laughs> I was like approaching like like a celebrity when they're eating lunch or something and trying to say, I think you were dining with um, your panel. And I was just wanted to say to you, you know, I really enjoyed your panel. And I spent a lot of time, I, I, I spoke to Anthony pretty briefly at that particular conference, but I spent a lot of time talking to Ryan Lay and a lot of the other, uh, Christina Belling, and there are a whole bunch of people that were just doing such amazing stuff, Kim Woozy. And when it was time to write the book, it made sense to extend the invitation to people that I'd known and got to hear speak and know a bit more about. And we put out a call to say, if you're interested in um, this book and you do social change, get connected with us. And then COVID hit, 2020 hit, my city had massive bushfires that look like California recently, like the earth was red and the sky was ruby coloured. And then we had floods. So my city went underwater yet again. And so, you know, there's no going anywhere. So that really sort of closed down a lot of the European people that we met at Pushing Borders. So um, Anthony, you know, wisely suggested that US focus would be easier simply because that's you know, that, that sort of is a, geographically it's dominated and driven a lot of the culture and, you know, he's based in the US and it just sort of got the time zones easier too because he's in New York and I'm in, you know, Australia and a lot of the other speakers are Midwest, so it was a lot of time zones. But the way that we 
ended up dividing the book. This might help just sort of narrow down those 42 people and then I'll let Anthony talk more about them. Kind of initially we looked at the book and when we gave the book proposal, it was by industry, community, competitions. It was very much about what skating does and then it became who are the people that do change in skateboarding because, you know, people are very much the heart of what cha- how change happens. It happens with people. And in the book, we, we break it down to initially we have, as our introduction, icons and iconoclasts, which gave us an opportunity to look at people like that are from the Skateboarding Hall of Fame. So you've got people like Cindy Whitehead, uh, Peggy Oakey from Dogtown. You've got Tommy Guerrero from Bones Brigade. We've got Lynn Kramer. We've got like some people that are icons of their era. And then iconoclasts are sort of like, if I think of like people like Stanley Kubrick or Martin Scorsese's in film that sort of, you know, just blow your mind of what they do. And for years to come, you'll still be talking about their impact on film. Iconoclasts is kind of how I thought about skateboarders that are social change makers that we were talking to. So in the iconoclasts, you know, we have people like um, Douglas Smiles Sr. from Apache Skateboards, uh, Kristen Nebelling from like the Skate Witches, Skate Like a Girl, Mess Magazine, Meow, like, you know, these are people that they may not be like household names everywhere, but what they've done to skateboarding blows your mind when you look at the sort of real creative and sort of, you know, radical changes that they introduced that we all, you know, a lot of us are almost taking for granted, particularly in the gender equity side. Then we had, a, we moved on for the iconoclast, we had breakthrough figures, and that allowed us to look at people like Fro Skate, who are relatively new to skateboarding, maybe only been doing it for a few years, and they have enormous impact. They have Nike shoe deals. They're like on Apple billboards. So these breakthrough figures also include, you know, like Indigenous skaters, you know, Douglas Miles Jr. We had, you know, like a range of other people that sort of really just shake up skateboarding. Then like sociologically, I love like categories. So you've got to excuse me for going through them. But we had all these other people. I just didn't, it's hard to like fit them. Like how are we going to introduce 42 people in this seven chapter book? And so again, it's like, well, what, how, how would be a way to like crystallize what they do? And we ended up with the categories of storytellers, community builders, strategists, and my favorite was the provocateurs who like do things like Man Ramp and um, the Nut Daily News and like, you know, make us laugh and like, you know, really push us to see ourselves in the mirror and see how ridiculous some of our behavior is or, you know, just have fun with it. And so, yeah, within in those uh, storytellers as well, it gave us a chance to speak to writers, speak to photographers, speak to filmers, because they they make radical changes too. Like somebody like Norma Ibarra, who is, you know, a Mexican, um, skate, Canadian skateboarder. She's a woman. She's taking photos um, in the area where there's not many, you know, women skate photographers. And, you know, storytellers as well can include people like that, you know, sort of write. So you're all writers, you know, on this podcast, I, I remember. And, um, you know, you all do like, you know, media in a sense. So looking at those, you know, sort of women and non-binary people that, you know, get on the mic with like some of the other skaters, like, you know, on podcasts, so like Vent City, uh, but we also speak to, you know, like those strategists. So people like Alex White, who, you know, has has one foot in like, you know, alternative independent women and non-binary and queer skateboarding and one foot in industry. So again, these worlds are coming together. So I'll let Anthony elaborate on uh, his side of things as well, but definitely those categories just help us tell readers 
these are the kinds of, you know, contributions that they do. We've got these storytellers and, you know, we've got these people that just iconoclast and just blast things that we know into pieces. So, Anthony, what do you, what do you um, recall yeah, about I, 42 people? <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, the hardest part of the book was just like tightening the funnel and figuring out what is the soul of the book. And when, when you start to do that, right, when there's like a finite, and you know, there's always going to be a finite amount of names and people aren't gonna you know people will gravitate to like why isn't so and so in there why isn't so and so in there and i think a lot of those choices were made on not not coming in an angle where we're going back to older folks and having them defend things you know because i just don't think there's any value in it like you know why why did you make that graphic you know and that was like sort of something that didn't end up in the book is that like louis barletta was was pretty responsive but didn't end up being in the book and was down to talk about uh some of enjoys more controversial graphics or whatever and and talk about you know how his perspective changed over time i think the idea was just to focus to keep it pretty tight around either folks who had a historical perspective and people who are making history now you know and like it's it's kind of a it's kind of a tough thing to make those cutoffs but for me it's like we're getting i mean the biggest challenge is when you know people and shifting into interview mode you know, like that's a real, I'm sure everyone's experienced that where you have these great conversations on offline and then you hit record and it's like very tense or kind of people's tones shift, you know? So that was like a hurdle to get over. But, but I think just like isolating what's your story and how is this changing things going for, forward rather than what, what happened in the past and how are you reacting to it? And then there is some bleed. Like I think one of the more valuable things that's really it's it's both super interesting to me and and really tragic is talking to someone like Cindy, you know, such as Cindy Whitehead, who pretty much, you know, if you talk to folks who were around at sort of the advent of skateboarding as an industry, it was a lot more integrated. And then at some point, the industry, you know, tightened up into how they wanted to market because really skate magazines are sort of just trade journals or fashion mags, right? They're driven by advertising and that advertising just started to skew male. So you had all these women and non-binary folks that were ripping back in the day that were there, that were at the legendary sessions that had a story that were sort of wiped out, you know, and like kind of pushed out. And, and it's almost like there's an entire secret history that's, that is now being told, I think, through, you know, great Instagram accounts and writing and documentaries I think the the absence of things shapes how people view things, right? Like if, you know, I was reading an interview that Kyle Beachy just did uh, or had done uh, over Zoom with Alexis Sablone and Mark Gonzalez, and there's a part at the end, it's now in print in, in a, a lit journal, but there's a part where like Mark was kind of like, yeah, but Alexis and Mark are going back and forth about how like in Mark's experience, women were always there in skating. and But if you weren't there, you wouldn't know, right? So I think it's it's kind of interesting to have, you know, Cindy's perspective as someone who was sort of pushed out. Um, and then also, you know, having the, the perspective of Tommy Guerrero, who's still, he's almost like a child actor in a sense, right? Where he had this like huge peak with the Bones Brigade and then went out and did real and uh, even 40s clothing, which is a pretty forward thinking company doing like um, local American made clothing, high quality workwear essentially for skateboarding that just wasn't sustainable at the time and and i think like tommy talking about you know reels like reels graphics some of them were pretty button pushing but in a smarter way um and i think that extended to anti-hero where it was kind of like 
It could be really dumb. It could be really subversive. You know, it's just like finding new ways to to push buttons. And yeah, you know, having those perspectives along with the folks who are making change right now, who like maybe just entered skateboarding and like in sort of those wounds of how difficult it was for them are still fresh. I think that was like, that was, you know, those were sort of the guidelines of, of what we did. And also it was just people who were down to get on a Zoom and do this weird, you know, mm-hmm. kind of meet people over zoom which is always like a awkward thing you know (laughs) I wanted to like also just talk to people in the book that we knew a bit about as well because and we write about it in the book that it's still not safe in skateboarding like cyber safety like to be a woman skateboarder for instance and you know other genders and minorities of all kinds can talk to this more as well it's just not safe like the amount of um weird people and stalkers and stuff that you can get. I, I just didn't want to open it up anymore as well. Like the the amount of trust that you need as a woman skateboarder to to work in this area and even to have an opinion because we, we all know like about three years ago everyone would tell me to make a sandwich if I even dared sort of say, hey, that's a nice board or, you know, get back in the kitchen. So, you know, really just trying to find out people's, uh, what they're about and, um, their groove and you know, like their history like somebody might all of us you know all of us need to be reflective like somebody might be really anti-racist but then they're like really transphobic for instance and um, you know we're, we're looking at a book not to preach and not to tell anyone how to how they should feel about anyone but we're certainly uh, united and all together I think throughout the book about thinking about skateboarding in terms of equity and just not being discriminated against and uh, how to how to skate together, you know, and we, we have a whole chapter on talking about this idea of radical empathy, which is really, really cool. Um, so Tom Carroll, who's a skateboarder, uh, adaptive skateboarder, is blind, uh, wrote it with um, Luke Cianciotto, who's a skater in America, I think Chicago maybe, writing about like when we're at the skate park, we have to have empathy with each other or we'd all crash into each other, right? Like you've got to anticipate if somebody's having a line, what you're almost in their shoes, you know what they're going to do. And so you give them that space to do that. And then you share it because it's your turn. And just trying to apply this sort of skater mindset and applying it to not just when you're at the skate park, but how we inter you know, how we interact with each other more generally, you know, is really, really important. So I feel like a lot of the people that we spoke to uh, all kind of embody this idea of like radical empathy. Uh, being reflective and, you know, I, I really hate the term social justice in some ways because it's it's overdone and it same like work, it's kind of almost like uh, it means nothing these days. But certainly, you know, everyone that we spoke to just, you know, has a real commitment to making change to make skateboarding better in some way. And, you know, we're really careful trying to use terminology in this book as well. Like it's a, it's a half academic, half sort of uh, journalist-inspired sort of writing um, and bridging those two, you know, isn't always easy, but we didn't want to call anybody like an activist. Like originally the title was, I think, activism and something else. And a lot of the people we spoke to wouldn't call themselves activists. They're just doing what they do to either, you know, have fun or go about their day or just, you know, survive some really, you know, prejudiced stuff going on in their scenes. So the idea of calling people, I think, in the third chapter change makers made a lot more sense. It's not labeling. It's not sort of saying, you know, you're committed to, you know, doing this thing because, you know, you, you, you're you passionate about that. It's more like just 
yeah, being in the skating space and understanding that something needs to change so we can all get on, you know, is really important. So, yeah, talking to these change makers and just having a really uh, sense of like what they do might just relate to say, you know, because, um, you know, people want to have say a black skate group or a queer skate group, but what they do is so much more. It sort of transcends their, their own group as well and makes skating an easier place for everybody, a more shared space for everybody. So everybody has power, you know, the skateboarding, the power and the change isn't so we become the most powerful because we're women or we become the most powerful because we're, for example, Asian American skaters or whatever. It's literally everybody has the power to share this space. So, yeah, I felt like the the cutoff point was also obviously for reasons of COVID and everything else, but also just trying to give the the time and space for people that had a lot to say that were doing this particular change with a common sort of ethical thread was really, really important as well. I love that Australian bird in your background, Indigo. <laughs> Go, no, no, no. It literally is just that. I'm not like at all <laughs> busting on, yeah, audio. Going back, like that aversion to being called an activist for both of you, I suppose. Like what what is it about skateboarding that, compels people just to do shit like do cool shit i don't know there's i feel like i don't know here we are on a podcast like i'm gonna pull the curtain back jason does not get that many free ventures we're not sponsored by (laughs) venture trucks like we do this because it's fun and it's cool and we get to talk to people and we get to do cool shit Mm. like is skateboarding's especially positioned for activism which is not a word we're using but is it what is it about skateboarding like i mean skateboarding compelled you two to devote years of your life to studying it and thinking about it and doing this what is it why (laughs) i think definitely it's going to be different for anthony for sure so i'll I'll let him go first but then i'll probably come with it from a different angle maybe just given that I've, we wrote this during COVID when things were pretty harsh towards Asians, it was horrible. Mm. So I think there's always like a backstory, I think, for change. But I'll let you go, Anthony, first. Yeah, I was just going to say that I, I think any any subculture, like, you know, you, you can say skateboarding is this multi-billion dollar industry, but that's skateboarding ephemera and apparel, right? Like it's the, the board sales aren't the big chunk of that B word, right? Like it's, we know this, right? And uh, I just think any subculture with is, is interesting to me in general right and when you get involved in it you sort of learn the the rules like the rule the unspoken rules and I think about this a lot like how dismissive I am of other things because I'm so interested in what I'm interested in but it's like I'm sure there's a fucking scoot podcast that's talking about the same shit like you scoot in public scooting isn't allowed scooters are scooter men or scooter people are probably shit on like there's a culture around everything. You know, I just might not be interested in it. Like there's a convention for everything, right? And I think what's unique about skateboarding, it's not like a collect, it's not like a bunch of people getting together to reenact the civil war or fucking trade stamps. It's a very active culture. So even like one one thing that was really sort of not in my wheelhouse is I didn't grow up in skate park culture. So that I never had these experiences. Like there was very few. Most of the parks I went to growing up were private parks. So the vibe's totally different. Like there's the hometown hero that doesn't let you go. And but other than that, like people are relatively friendly where I think like a public space is a little more confrontational. And a lot of the folks we're speaking with, they 
their entry to skate skateboarding is like literally rolling up to this cage and like entering like a fucking MMA fight to survive or something in a weird way um, where like they're unsure of their skill level or if they're accepted. I, I don't come from that. Right. So, but I do think ultimately like skateboarding is this adaptive, it's this spatial relationship. And I think that's why there's so many creative people because you're, you know, one, there's kind of this paradox of like, you're trying to bring all this intellectualism or skill to a toy, you know, like it still is a toy. We can't separate that. And it's no different than a scooter. It's just cooler. But, you know, so there's this like interplay of like trying to do something really almost highbrow in a sense with the toy. And then also how you're going to subvert environment. So I think just that alone, people who, you know, there's plenty of people who, have been skateboarding for 30 years who go back and forth and that's awesome. That's not taking anything away from it, but I think there's this other swath of people that like, it sort it sort of starts where like there aren't good spots in your town. So you make a spot, whether you make a ramp or you're altering architecture in order to skateboard on it. Right. I just think that that drive just makes you pretty resourceful. And if anything, like that's an analog for people looking at like, like dismantling rules or subverting rules. Like if, it's not legal to skate here. How do I make it legal? If I'm not comfortable here, how do I get comfortable? If there's clothing that isn't being made for me, how do I make that clothing? Like, I think I think that's what's unique to skateboarding that maybe wasn't prevalent in other, other cultures, whether it's like rollerblading, snowboarding, scootering. And also like the barrier to entry is almost like punk rock. It's pretty low. Like it's not super expensive to do those things. Like you can learn how to, you know, make a zine is pretty cheap. Making t-shirts on your own stickers, they're all pretty low barrier to entry things for, for most folks, you know, I'm not saying it's free or whatever, but I, I just think that element there makes it, like to me, that's what, it's it's a balance of restriction, like being restricted and trying to be the most creative with that. And I think that's what makes skateboarders thrive. And I think that's why so many like corny, startup bros like every startup bro i've ever met used to skate because it's like we were fucking renegades bro we like you know like it's the same thing we're doing with this app that like uh sends shaving equipment to your house we're disruptors you know like i think i think everyone's trying to get that energy without really understanding the culture around it <laughs> that's so funny sorry <laughs> the um yeah tech tech bros are are interesting hey there's like all different types of skateboarders and I'm like I said at times a lot of the skaters we interviewed and and myself as well maybe women non-binary and queer like we've got our own culture and we didn't really grow up on men's skate culture so a lot of the heroes and culture is pretty it's almost like learning it in reverse now and um you know, it's it's really interesting seeing some of the personalities, the skaters on, say, skate Twitter that are getting a lot of, um, you know, heat because their their whole approach to skating is like a business, and there's this monetizing of skating, and it, you know, I think that's the next era. Like, I, I don't know anybody in our book that really makes money from skating. Maybe there's just a, a couple, but for most people, they just do it for the love of it. And they do it under enormous pressure just to feel comfortable when they do it. So, you know, we spoke to uh, like, like the founders of Froskate and, you know, their, their main goal, this is why we didn't use the word activists, like they just want to go out and skate without feeling like they're on show, like they're a spectacle. They just want to skate and have fun like everybody else, right? So they're not an activist per se. They, they do stuff 
that activates change and they, they make change, hence the word change makers. But um, yeah, I, I'm really interested in the, yeah, this sort of commodification of skateboarding that is existing because I, I think part of your question, the way I interpreted it is, you know, why do we all do this? You know, why do the podcast if you're not, you know, getting showered in free product all the time or whatever? And it, it is interesting that there's this new, there is a new sort of wave or maybe it was always there, but it's normal, noticeable now with social media and everything of people that use skateboarding less soulfully maybe and to, you know, monetize it and make money. And that that's kind of the, the polar opposite of the people that we spoke to in this book. I feel like most of the people we spoke to lose money doing what they do. And so it's a really great question. Why do they do it? Like, why are they advocating for a new skate park that, you know, uh, hasn't got much attention? Or, you know, why are they, you know, trying to get a skate group together when they know they're going to get a lot of internet hate? And, yeah, it's a really, it's really, again, about, I think, because skateboarding brings so much joy to us, to everybody that skates, who's a skateboarder, is it, it you know it's is it um it's electrifying when you do it it, it just feels so good mm. when you skate to to deny that to somebody else just seems really shitty thing to do so you know the idea again of radical empathy like a lot of the people that we spoke to that don't probably get harassed because of their identity in a in a you know when they walk up to the park they have other things going on for them you know i think they just they feel like this space should be somewhere where everybody has that access to that feeling and they're really surprised when that's taken away in any way so it would make you you know get up and say well look you know if you if you can't skate in this space because people are being dicks to you how can we help like you know let's let's give our indoor skate space to you every Wednesday or something and you know you can do what you want you know I feel like that's probably it's not activism it's something else isn't it (laughs) you know they talk about it in the book you know like their experiences about how they just love skateboarding so much and when they saw something go wrong, then they felt like it was worth doing something within their power to change that around. And, yeah, it's not for money and it's not even for a pat on the back. Like a lot of the people we spoke to, especially the strategists, they do everything behind in, in the back scenes. You would really know some of the, you know, momentous things they've done, like, you know, basically change bills to have pay parity and skate comps and stuff. But, you know, it's kind of new. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe we're all just a little bit just like a family (laughs) and you do things for family you don't even know why and you don't even get on with half your family you know (laughs) like you just do something for them because you're loyal to them and it's it's who you are I mean I don't I don't know about y'all but to me like skateboarding is one of the only things I've ever been involved in that every time I'm interacting with it there's a possibility that I'm going to see something for the first time you know even just how someone does a trick you know that little nuance of like where their feet are how their arm is or whatever like I've been witnessing this and doing it myself like for so long and and I'm constantly I mean the level now just like uh, the actual technical level now is just fucking mind-blowing you know it's like we're we're like post everyone good era I don't know there's something about like the way someone skating can unlock something and, and it doesn't even have to be on a board but it's like for me, it was like seeing zines for the first time and understanding that like a photocopy machine could create a periodical or seeing like someone Wally for the first time. It's like, oh, I can use a wall that way differently. And I think that's no different than sort of what's happening now. Like the idea of taking a space and making it your space, you know, if, if you don't feel welcome is a, is a pretty radical idea. And sort of go back to that, like not wanting to be labeled an activist. I think a lot of times someone 
is labeled an activist simply because they're just not going along with what the norm is. And that's why they don't, you know, it's like, I'm just trying to exist here. I'm not a fucking activist. I'm just trying to be treated normally, you know, <laughs> I'm trying to be treated equally, uh, not normally equally, you know? So, but yeah, I, I think, I think that like idea that you always have the potential to have your mind blown in a way that you didn't expect is really, really special. I mean, I mentioned it on here an episode or two ago. I took my six-year-old daughter to a skateboard demo at Familia Skate Park, Vans demo, and her mind was blown. She loved it. Like, there's something, so I don't good. know, There's it's like the basic joy of, like, noise, people, action, hanging out with friends. Like, like I don't think it's that high concept, even though you can go extremely high concept with why this is so awesome. Even just, I mean, when you really think about it, like an ollie, even though it's pretty simple physics, like if we broke down the physics, it wouldn't take that long, but it's still fucking really cool. This thing popping up and sticking to your feet. Like, I guess that's why I never like snowboarding. Cause it's like, well, it's stuck to your fucking feet. Like, okay, cool. Like you can go higher and further and do some spins and shit, like, and not taking anything away from it, but it wasn't like, or you look at surfing, like surfing is like the hardest thing in the world to me because it's not connected to you and you're at the mercy of uh, the the environment and the ocean. Like, I guess that's why civilians like it so much. And I think skateboarding is <laughs> kind of the same thing. Like, what, you know, when you show, you couldn't show a civilian, like they tune out. If you showed them like a primitive video, they're just kind of like, after a minute, they're just glazed over. But if you showed them like Jamie Foy or something, it's like, what the fuck? Like, He's <laughs> levitating on these round things down a hundred trillion stair, like that kind of like evil Knievel shit, not, not downplaying his skateboarding at all. It's just using it as an example. Like that's still so, or just like falling yeah. over something high. People are just so fucking mesmerized by that. Cause it is pretty amazing feat. <laughs> yeah. It's so mesmerizing. And, and I think when you do it as well, it's you know very absorbing and it brings in a lot of energy. So you know, I, I, I like the way that it focuses a lot of people. And, you know, I find, like, with this book, it was really easy. When you ask skaters to talk about skateboarding and their experiences of it, it's very hard to finish the conversation. They they would just have a lot to say and a lot to talk about. And, you know, I've never met a skateboarder that doesn't have this incredible backstory and this incredible life and just the most interesting you know, insights on the most, even the most banal things like, you know, catching a bus to work and going past a, you know, a bench. And to them, the whole way that they see that bench is just incredible. And then there are all these stories about how if they want to skate the bench, you know, they're likely to get a ticket or they grew up and the police always hassled them from using that bench. And, you know, there's a whole sort of history of being a skateboarder that I think probably in my existence, snowboarding and surfing as well. But, you know, with, with skateboarding, you do interact with society. You're not always in a wave where people are at the beach and wave at you. You literally take your skateboard through, you know, the street. You've got to, you know, skate through the streets and you're interacting with the public all the time. Uh, you're interacting as some of the interviewees that we had that worked with the Skate Park Project, like Alec Beck and, um, you know, Christian Moreno, but even... Uh, talking to Ryan Lay and uh, Amelia Brodka, like, you know, we've got Olympians and then we've got people that are, you know, sort of from a very sort of subcultural side of skateboarding, talking about how they met all these different people in society through skateboarding on the streets, on their driveways, to and from the skate park that I think a lot of other sports don't expose you to. So I think that also makes skateboarders not so much activists but want to change things as well because they they don't live in a bubble on a sports field. They live in the streets and they interact 
with people all the time and they're often in areas where you know they're interacting with a broad section of society if not like a very disadvantaged and marginalized sections of society so I feel like that can change a lot for people as well and you know I know in the past like it's on lots of you know discussions about you know people owing over unhoused and homeless people and how that's uncool and you know people are like realizing that now but it's also like you know I think those conversations around the city and how to be um, coexisting with everybody are, are really really uh, increasing now you know I, I showed you a book before by um, you know uh, Connor about you know the state of uh, California and everything like you know skaters see this uh, from you know a very young age you know no matter what their background you know it, they, they will see people that are struggling in the streets and they will be harassed maybe by public for being outsiders. So all of this really is a sort of, you know, a, a foundation for understanding disadvantage and maybe wanting to change things just so you can skate. So when they meet somebody that skates that might be from a different background, whether they're like a woman or queer or whatever, you know, it's not a, it's not a huge jump for them to understand what it's like to be disadvantaged and excluded for skating and just wanting to skate. So I think that really helps um, a lot of people, you know, have that empathy that I was talking about before as well. And, you know, in the book, we we go, th- we actually ask the people, what was it like growing up skateboarding? And, you know, what's it like now? So we do a little sort of, you know, life course or like a life cycle. of almost like, was skating really cool growing up or was it not? And, you know, it's no surprise that for the women uh, and the non-binary skaters, they, they talk about more difficulties. But, for the men that we interviewed, so many of them just say skateboarding opened them up to different types of people that it, their lives wouldn't have without that, whether it's in through high school, like they, their high school might have been pretty homogenous and, uh, you know, the same types of people. But then when they went and skated the city in the afternoon with skaters, you know, they, they mixed with all different kinds of people. So, yeah, for, for the men, I'm not saying that they don't have their own backstories and troubles, but definitely they they have an inbuilt empathy again just from skating meeting all these different kinds of people which is really cool yeah i, th- I think the the thing that keeps people in skateboarding is everything but skateboarding cuz like i couldn't imagine someone would pursue archery for 30 years and kind of suck at it you know like <laughs> you, you know what i mean like my uh, my uncle is like he's hunted his entire life and he's never caught he's never you know got that big deer or whatever Cause he's like, he won't go with the rifle. He'll only, he won't go with an automatic weapon. He has to go with a fucking, you know, a compound bow. And he's been doing that for 40 years. And that's the only other person I, I've seen fail that long. And when I talk to him, like uncle Charlie, like, why the fuck do you do punish yourself with this shit? He likes everything around hunting, but the hunting, I think, I think he's actually like too scared to actually shoot an animal. He likes the whole going up to the woods with his bros, building a tree stand sitting up there shooting the shit. And like, I think that, you know, skateboarding is this activity where like everything around it keeps you in it more than the actual thing. Cause I mean, ultimately like skill diminishes and you know, I'm trying to, it's like pretty fucking ridiculous. I jump up and down on a fucking foam square just to try to get my leap back so I can be a below mediocre skateboarder. You know what I mean? Like that is, I, I couldn't, I don't see a lot of things where people are like totally cool with being like sub okay at it, but they'll devote all this time to it. But I guess there's a lot of shitty artists too. So I guess I'll, I'll take it back. <laughs> there's a lot of studies in this, um, in the Finnish Youth Research Network, they spend a lot of uh, time and interest in skateboarding 
And, you know, you go to the airport and they'll have a huge poster of, you know, Adosari and a whole bunch of skateboarders and the spots they have are pretty, you know, around the city. And they did a study of, like, elite athletes, like the traditional runners and swimmers, and a comparative study with people in action sports, so surfing, skateboarding in particular. And what they found is as the skaters aged, they still skated even though their skills diminished and they had actually less mental health problems than the elite athletes who, once they stopped being the swimmer or the runner, lost all their friends, lost their status. You know, it's not like 50 years later they said, oh, yeah, you know, like I'm going to go to this, see this band and it's full of swimmers, the swimmers band. Whereas if you're a skater, you might only skate on weekends, but you can go see a band and it's all skaters. You can live in a share house full of skaters. You can buy some clothes and it's all made by skaters and you're still part of that culture. And for the mental health studies, it's actually a really, really positive thing to be able to maintain that identity uh, on and off the board as a skater for your lifetime compared to all these other sports where once your status fades or your skills fade, you know, you lose that friendship group, you lose, you know, that identity. So what you're saying is, um, yeah, really uh, true across different cultures as well, Anthony. I don't know. They didn't do the study on archery, though. So (laughs) (laughs) comparing skaters to archers, that's that's one for the next study, maybe. Spoiler alert, our next book is on yeoman. (laughs) (laughs) Well, speaking of the book, how do people get the book? Yeah, so you can get it on any of the, you know, uh, main ways of getting books online, Barnes & Nobles or Amazon or whatever you've got over there, Walmart. I don't want to like, you know, sort of tell people to go and buy off big multinationals if they're not into that. So you can ask your bookstore and they'll get it in and, you know, support your local skate stores, ask them to order it in. And with our publisher as well, Palgrave Macmillan, um, they will send it with free shipping and on, um, I think, Anthony's socials and uh, on the books posters, there's a code for 20% off. So it's, you know, we try to keep the cost down and we're really lucky. We go straight to paperback and ebook. And normally with an academic press, you've got to sell a gazillion to go to paperback, but they just know that skateboarding's rad, so they just go straight to paperback, which is good. I'll have that 20% off code on uh, mostlyskateboarding.net for those who need to copy and paste. Is there anything you guys wanted to, anything else that you guys wanted to cover? Mainly yeah, there's just I, been I, so I think many. that was pretty deep, deep dive. There's, there's so many people we couldn't mention that are, you know, part of the book and you know, in the acknowledgements, there's a whole bunch of other people that just helped us get get to the finish line. So um, you can look at, for free, you can look at the front end of the book and the back end, meaning the preface and the acknowledgements and the, um, you know, the list of who contributed to the book. So that's all free just to sort of, you know, check out online as well on the publisher's site because everybody was just equally amazing. And a uh, shout to Adam Abada for you know, lending his drawings to the book that are really amazing and being part of the process too. Like, you know, I haven't been part of a project where the illustrator has been so involved and happy to be part of the entire thing and hop on Zoom after a long day. So that was like, you know, extra special thanks to him for, for doing that. Bada's great. I met him in Tempe. Dude yeah. the dude. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, really, really great sort of interpreting what the chapters are about and what the issues were. We used seven of his illustrations. And again, you can preview some on the publisher's website. And yeah, it was um, such a privilege and an honor to you know have him on board and working with us. Thank you, Adam. Stoked to have the whole Skate Twitter family on the book. Uh, 
So that brings us to the end of our show where we talk about what we're stoked on. Dr. Indigo Willing, what are you stoked on? this? I am so stoked on Spinifex skateboards uh, in Lynchurapurdy in Central Australia in the Northern Territory. They're a First Nations skate company run by Nikki Hayes and um, they have amazing artwork. If you, if anybody knows of the traditional Indigenous dot painting artwork, um, they have a lot of that on their boards. So they've just got a new skate park approved and it's going to be rad. And over in the US, the artwork of Dior Greenwood and Enchantment Skate Shop and Apache Skateboards would probably get me super, super stoked. Nice. You want to throw to Anthony? Sure thing. Uh, I'm stoked on... Uh, working with the great people over at Huff. Um, I've been really stoked on discovering a bunch of BBC documentaries that I haven't seen specifically. Um, there's a great Throbbing Gristle one, uh, kind of a short Jeff Buckley one that's kind of cool, and a really interesting one on uh, Delia Derbyshire's like pretty much invented electronic music. Uh, and that one's really interesting because they have like full on reenactments and actors and everything. And it's, it's, it's kind of funny too. So that is my content deep dive. I wish there would be, you know, in thinking about how many different documentaries and genres of music they've covered, it would be interesting to see like a BBC take on skateboarding. That feels like a lane that I'm surprised there's not like a BBC X palace collab or something. And there's new music from Apex twin and slow dive. I'm really hyped on that and sort of skate things. I've been stoked on lately. Um, the Gassed Up video, Magenta Just Cruise 2. Uh, shout out to Dead Air Radio and the stuff they're making. Uh, that Ace Trucks Theories edit and also new graphic series from Hops. It was just a really clean and simple summary graffiti series. And also shout out to former guest and skate video luminary Jacob Rosenberg for hitting a birthday milestone as well. Hell yeah. Happy birthday, Jacob. Uh, Jason, what are you stoked on this week? As we mentioned before, stoked on Venture Trucks um, out of San Francisco, California. Stoked on a couple East Coast type videos. Uh, the the Fuck Yin's crew, I believe it's some type of crew out of Pittsburgh, uh, just dropped to edit. Entirely filmed at the 37th Street DIY. I, I assume in Pittsburgh. Uh, it was pretty sick. Uh, friend, friend of the pod, friend IRL, Ross Norman has some shit in there. Stoked on the new video from View Skate Shop out of Baltimore called Zan and Cullen's Pack of Lies. Zan and Cullen are the new kids on the team, so they made a video to kind of showcase them along with the montage of basically everyone in Baltimore. Also, as the video game liaison of this podcast, I'm stoked on my first solo victory on the new Warzone map uh, earlier today. It was, it was so fucking juiced. Mike, what are you stoked on this week? So I'm stoked on having two return guests to the uh, Mostly Skateboarding podcast. Uh, really appreciate Indigo and Anthony coming back, trusting us as a platform for just, you know, to promote serious work. Appreciate what you both have done. Also stoked on the other night, drumroll please, I did, I did some 360 flips on flat ground and that trick... Ever since I stopped skateboarding on Guy Mariano, like, 7.4-inch decks, I couldn't do. And I had a dream about, like, the flick of 360 flips on flat, and I did them. And I did, like, maybe a dozen, 15. Some of them were acceptable even, so I'm pretty stoked on that. That felt great. Mike, like, what is the secret? 
I mean, probably skate a small, like like the same size. If you ever learn 360 flips, skate the same size board you learn them on, because we've all maybe. Oh boy. Yeah. Oh no, I dude, I can't do nine, <laughs> and a, nine and a half. Anyone got a, oh shit. Anyone got a seven point four? Yeah, Anthony, you're you're asked out. Yep. I, I think uh no offense, dude, but um Jason, you might be in better luck, but that would be weird too. I don't think you could find trucks for that. <laughs> I have a seven point two five. I think I have some Oh like, man. I think I have some ventures from like two thousand or something. I mean, whatever the venture conspiracy is that happens with this podcast, like maybe you could get some customs. Who knows? I pour them myself. (laughs) I'd just like to add that I'm on the fucking's website. They don't have a Yinzer shirt, and they need to get on that. It's on record now. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They do have some good fucking shirts, but I want Yinzer. That's just too good. Yinzer. Can Um, I do two less chats for my, my Australian side is just the middle store skate shop and Popeye skate shop so if anyone comes out visits us in Mianjin Brisbane go go visit them because like Kane's just opened up Popeye's and it's, it's such a good shop but also you know he's worked with like a lot of Australian legends like Dennis Durand and um, Tommy Finn and Alex Lawton like you know some of the really really great skateboarders out here are all part of that family so super super stoked he's he's like took a few years off to go have a family and he's got like a you know a son and like a lot of the skaters that we know that you know become parents you know you kind of hope that they come back to skating and is yeah definitely return to film and open up the shop so it's it's great who is that again to go so popeye skate shop kane stewart kane stewart yeah word the popeye's shop tea is very cool yeah, yeah, it's it's great, isn't it? Like a skeleton, and it has like for each kind of like you know the elbows. It's like here did a you know nolly laser flip, or you know this one was skating out with the boys or something, and it's like a broken like femur or whatever. And yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's pretty good. You just spoke of like my nightmare injury, so I'm gonna move on. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> Maybe Templeton. You. No, not that T-shirt. <laughs> um, Templeton, what are you stoked on this week? Uh, I am stoked on another podcast. The Skate Creative Podcast had me on this week as a conversation I had a few weeks ago with Joel Curtis, and uh, that went live today on Go Skateboarding Day. So uh, we'll link that in the show notes so you can find out what my deal is. Uh, no <laughs> big, bit, uh, no big deal. <laughs> yeah, it, it really is no big deal. But if if you've ever wondered what my deal is, listen to that podcast and find out. That's it for our show this week. Be sure to check out mostlyskateboarding.net for links to the things that we talked about. We talked a lot about a, <clears throat> we talked about a lot of things. Uh, fuck shit. Uh, we talked about a lot of things this week. Um, until next time, you can keep up with us all week online. Anthony, where can the people find you? Um, just go to anthonypavlardo.com is kind of the hub for everything, and yeah, that's the easiest one. All right, Indigo, where where can the people find you? Oh, just around the place. <laughs> Um, I don't know. Yeah, probably uh, on Insta, Insta, um, Good Willing Hunting. So like Good Will Hunting, the movie, but Willing for my surname, Good Willing Hunting's where I'm hanging out a lot. Say hi. There you go. Uh, Mike, where can the people find you? I'm on the Twitter and the Instagram under the same handle, at M Munzenrider. Kind of bobbled that. It's two M's, Unzenrider. Jason, where can the people find you? On Twitter at Carbonite1994, on Instagram at Frozen Carbonite, and uh, writing stuff for quartersnacks.com.
Templeton, where can the people find you? You can find me on Instagram at Mostly Skateboarding and on Twitter at Mostly Skate. We will see you guys next week. Right. Thank you. Thank you. That was awesome. Hey, thank you, too. Yeah, we, we always, like, fumble the bag when it's, like, comes to thanking our guests because we have our little outro so well but thank you so you both so much again for like trusting us to do this a couple times over oh so 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 fun thank you i'm, I'm such a big fan of um all of you and oh, can't wait to meet so you kind. I, I hope i get to meet you all i don't know where i need to do that ohio i guess <laughs> Minneapolis, ohio. is that the same place are they Oh!